we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. We're your hosts, Dimitri and Etienne, and today we interviewed Stefan Briggs from Whitehall Farm, where he has set up one of the biggest agroforestry systems in the UK. Maybe now you're starting to get used to the way we do things on the podcast. So with Stefan, we're going to unpack the functioning of his system. And then we're going to look at some of the strategic implications and some of the, of the ways that agroforestry has, has affected his, uh, the strategy of his farm. And we're going to find out that Stefan is very happy with the way that he's integrated apples in his grain operation. And I invite you to keep going so you find out exactly how that works. Hi, Stefan, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, good afternoon, and uh, it's great to be here. Well, um, I was thinking to get us started, maybe you could give us uh, a bit about your story and how you got started uh, on Whitehall Farm. Okay, yeah. Um, so it's a, as is always the case, it's a, a fairly complex backstory. Um, after leaving school many, many years ago, I actually trained as a, an engineer. Uh, and after a number of years working in engineering, I decided that actually my my true passion led uh, in the outdoor world. So I, uh, I did some traveling around the globe and then I retrained in agricultural engineering. Um, and that took me uh, to work, do some work in Africa, uh, and for a few years, and then I uh, did some more training uh, uh, as a degree in agriculture, and then a master's in soil science. I then went back to work in Africa on soil projects um, for a few years, and then in India for the World Bank and FAO. Um, and then I came back to the UK with my wife um, and um, as, a, as a qualified soil scientist you know, nearly 30 years ago, uh, there were very few farmers interested in soil other than uh, organic or biological farmers. Uh, so I started working with, with organic farmers, uh, doing advisory work on agronomy. Um, and um, uh, then started my own consultancy business in 2000, uh, which is still going today, working with farmers all over um, the UK and, and internationally. That's a consultancy group called Abagus Agriculture. But deep down, my, my, my passion of both myself and my wife, my wife's from a farming, farming family in the north of the country, and our passion was always to go farming ourselves. Mm. So in, in 2005, we were in a position to be able to buy a very small piece of land um, of about uh, 10, 12 hectares. And we started farming that organically. And at the same time, we started applying for farms to rent because our, our pockets weren't deep enough to purchase a farm outright. 
or a large farm. Um, so we, we applied for a number of farms and got turned down. And eventually we applied for, for Whitehall Farm um, and were given a uh, initially a 15-year uh, term to rent the farm uh, to start our farming operation. So that's, that's I guess, the, uh, the, 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 the quick answer to how, how we ended up here. <laughs> and I'm kind of wondering, um, how did you then get involved with uh, agroforestry? So, uh, I, I, as I alluded to already, my, I, I guess my back, uh, my background is very much to do with soils. Um, having done a master's in soil science, um, so when we when we moved onto the farm back in two thousand and seven. Um, and, and I should say in the farm, so, so, so listeners know where the farm is, we're, uh, we're in Cambridgeshire, which is in the east of England. Uh, we're about one hour north of London, um, about um, 30 minutes uh, northwest of Cambridge. And we're just on the edge of a, uh, of a large city called Peterborough. So the area is very low lying. Um, uh, it was drained by the Dutch uh, in the mid 1600s. Um, it's known as Fenland uh, here in the UK, but the, the Dutch would call it a polder or reclaimed land. So it's it's a very low. We're only just above sea level. Uh, in some places, just below sea level. So it's a it's an artificial drained landscape, very flat. The whole farm, which is just over 100 hectares. There's only about one meter difference from one end to the other. Uh, the soils are very high quality. We we have um, clay, heavy clay soils, uh, and we have some peat soils with up to twenty percent organic matter, organic wow. carbon in them. So they're they're, they're really they're, they're really very fertile, but they're very prone to uh, erosion by wind. Um, and when we moved on to the farm in two thousand seven. Um, I was uh, shocked to to see the amount of erosion that was occurring uh, from from wind when the soils get dry and without any cover. Um, and um, as a soil scientist, it, I found that completely unacceptable that our most important and valuable resource was being eroded. So I started thinking about ways that we might be able to um, mitigate the damage done by uh, wind. And uh, I thought back to some of my time actually working and living in Uganda with my wife on soil projects where I'd been involved in some tropical agroforestry. And um, I started to think that maybe that might work here in the UK in, in a temperate environment. So back in 2009, we, we actually decided after about two years of planning uh, um, and, and talking to our, our, our landowners about putting trees on the farm, uh, we, we put in place a, a agroforestry system covering 52 hectares. Uh, we planted for 4,500 trees um, uh, in, a, in a silver arable Alley cropping system, and and, and the, the the primary the primary function was about uh, was about trying to stop soil degradation and from wind erosion. But you know, the other things that come with agroforestry, which we'll discuss, 
um, will, will benefit. Yeah, and before we we go in more in detail into the agroforestry stuff, I was wondering, uh, just to finish this kind of picture of your farm, uh, what are your main productions and how do you com commercialize? Yeah, so um, uh, you know, historically, when we moved onto the farm, uh, the the farm, I guess, for probably thirty years, would have grown wheat, barley. Uh, oilseed rape or colza, um, um, uh, some sugar beet and maybe potatoes. So it was a mi always a mixture of root crops and, and cereals. When we moved onto the farm um, in 2007, we wanted to convert the, the farm to organic production, um, which we started straight away. And uh, over the last decade we've grown um, uh, wheat oats barley uh, we've grown um, uh, root vegetables like leeks uh, poro in French maybe yeah yeah <laughs> um, and um, uh, and also uh, um, bat rouge red beet um, yep. and um, Uh, and some some um, brassica vegetables like cauliflower and broccoli. Uh, you know, at, at one stage we 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 were growing up to a hundred hundred acres or forty hectares of broccoli and cauliflower. Oh. So uh, uh, we, um, we we had quite a diverse organic rotation, uh, growing cover crops um, and and growing cash crops of cereals. Uh, for a number of years, we specialized growing seed crops. Uh, and, and vegetables, uh, and at one stage we we actually uh, for seven years we we, we contract farmed um, another uh, 150 hectares of, of land elsewhere, um, but uh, that that came that came to an end uh, three years ago, um, and uh, uh, the reasons for that were partly the landowner wanted to change a policy. Um, but also we, we decided um, that we wanted to uh, better connect with consumers. So we, we turned one of our um, buildings into a farm shop and cafe. So at the moment so, you have both the, you sell on the wholesale market and then you also have a bit of this direct selling through the, the cafe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Uh, two two things happened, well, which we'll talk about later. But in, in 2011, I, I traveled the, the globe uh, under a Nuffield Farming Scholarship looking at agroforestry. Um, and um, what impressed me as part of that journey was farmers and farming businesses, which had connected better with consumers. And my wife and I have always had a passion to better educate uh, and connect Uh, consumers and, and the public with farming um, so we, we converted we did the building work and converted one of the buildings into a farm shop and, and a cafe um, and um, uh, some of our produce is sold directly to the public through through the shop and some some is uh, contracted on the wholesale market i'm curious to know more about um, the agroforestry trees that you planted, because you mentioned you planted 52 um, hectares of agroforestry. Um, but what trees um, were they? So there, there were a number of parameters uh, which I, I guess uh, informed our choice. Uh, 
the the main one being actually that we don't own the farm. Um, that we, we rent the farm for fifteen. You know, we had a fifteen year agreement. So if we were going to plant trees, we needed an economic market return within the lifetime of our rental agreement. So we we that meant that we couldn't say plant a an oak tree or a walnut tree and wait thirty years for it to mature. Uh, we needed something that would grow quicker. Uh, so we actually decided to 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 uh, grow fruit trees, um, and we decided that we would grow apples, um, mainly because actually apples had been grown in this region historically, but but actually uh, over the last sort of twenty five thirty years, the, the the amount of apples had had declined, uh, a consequence of the sort of common agricultural policy. Uh, I guess was that a lot of apple production in the UK had, had decreased massively because it was easier to bring the fruit in from elsewhere in Europe. But actually, there's a organically at least there's a bit of resurgence and demand for uh, UK apples, um, and we planted thirteen varieties, half of which were heritage uh, heritage varieties, very old varieties, uh, to try and produce English organic. Uh, heritage apples um, and uh, yeah so four and a half thousand trees um, 13 varieties of apples and we either sell them as eating or cooking fruit uh, or we we turn it into juice and, and sell it as apple juice okay nice and um, the apples um, that you're selling for as, as fresh um, um, apples are they going on the wholesale market as well, or are they um, being sold um, mostly at your farm shop? No, we sell everything ourselves, so we don't go into wholesale markets at all. <laughs> we we wanted to be price makers rather than price takers. Um, and what spacings are are your tree lines on? So um, we set the system up uh, based on a twenty four meter alley. Uh, and then the, the the so the tree the tree lines as an alley cropping system face nearly north south, uh, which is important uh, to minimise shade with the the sun coming up in the east and down in the west. Uh, you know, we're, we're a little further north here in the UK than than uh, you guys in France, so at this time of year the sun's pretty low, uh, so we wanted to minimise shading so that the trees are north south. Um, a 24 meter alley with a three meter strip um, of pollen and nectar and flowers underneath the trees to attract pollinators. So the, the actual tree rows are 27 meters apart, 1.5 meters either side, leaving a, a, a 24 meter alley. Okay, and the trees um, on the on the tree line. What's the spacing between each apple tree? So th uh, three meters between each tree. Okay. Um, in a three meter strip, a 24 meter alley, and our field sizes are the biggest field is 13.5 uh, hectares, the smallest field will be 4.2 hectares, um, seven fields altogether um, in, 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 a, in a 52 hectare block. Okay, and I'm, I'm curious to know about um, the fertilization and irrigation. Um, plan that you have for those agroforestry areas yeah so um, well uh, 
the 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 easy one on irrigation is that we don't. There, okay. The, the only irrigation is what falls out of the sky. <laughs> Great. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, in some in some ways, we have we have a very high water table. You know, we're only at sea level, uh, mm-hmm. and the the water uh, table is only uh, 1.5 meters, one to 1.5 meters below ground. Um, so actually stressing the trees and getting them to put down deep roots means they can drink from the bottom. Um, anyhow, I mean, today we've had a lot of rain, uh, already this winter and we've got some fields where we have, where we have um, standing water, we have ponds in the fields because we've had so much rain, um, which is a bit of an issue. Although the, the agroforestry fields are much drier than the, the fields without the trees. I guess the trees are, are helping with that drainage. Um, do you fertilize the apple trees in any specific way, or um, do they just have to to do with what they, there is there? Yeah, so um, we, we've looked at the uh, uh, sort of fertilization program for the for the trees, and, and and actually, you know, we are fortunate to have have good fertile soils with uh, good levels of potassium. Um, uh, phosphate and nitrogen so the trees the trees largely look after themselves uh, although the, we have to keep an eye on the calcium um, and occasionally have to add some, some calcium um, in the form of uh, 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 either sugar beet byproducts or um, uh, uh, a lime a, a lime product just just to, but we've only done that once in 10 years so so generally they look they look look after themselves pretty well without much intervention i have to say when i when i talk to you i can't help but feel a bit jealous because it seems like you have really really good farming lands between the abundant fertility and the high water table so <laughs> yeah it's good the the, the the challenge what was interesting is when we moved on to the farm the soils yeah they're good fertile soils but biologically they were dead yeah. they were completely inert Mm. Uh, and it was very difficult to get crops to establish wow. uh, because the, the, the biological status was was really poor. You know, it, it had very high use of uh, fertilizers, of pesticides, of soil sterilants uh, for production, and it, it took us seven, eight years to to, to actually get the soils to to, to uh, function better biologically. And and now now they work really well, and our yields have been going up. And um, yeah, the other thing that uh, made me curious is when you were describing that three meter strip, um, you know, of um, for pollinators be- below the trees. Did you sow that uh, when you planted the trees, and then you kind of just um, let it be and, and mow it from time to time, or what does that look yeah. like? Yeah. So before we planted the trees in the, in the immediately following the harvest in two thousand and nine, we sowed. Um, the three meter strips under the trees with a, uh, a mixture of uh, legumes, uh, clovers, um, wild flowers, um, uh, about 30, uh, well, we had about 20 different species that we, we planted. Um, on some fields, we did one mixture, on some fields, we did another mixture. Um, and, and then we planted the trees into those mixtures. And over the last 10 years, those mixtures have changed massively. So and, and initially, some species, the pioneer species, came up. And then 
later on the the legumes the clovers and the sanfoins and the uh, the, the daisies uh, uh, dominated and even though we didn't plant any grass the grass has has come into the to the strips as well over over the last decade um, but they, they provide a really important refuge for uh, pollinating insects which we need for the trees but also uh, beneficial insects which we need for uh, managing the, the crops uh, around the rest of the farm biologically so there's a there's a there's a, a lot of a lot of abundance of, of biodiversity in those trips in fact we've been working with um, uh, some universities um, and we've had uh, two PhD students and about six MSc students studying the biodiversity and the, the species richness and the uh, the distribution of insects and it's you know it's it's significantly better in the agroforestry and they, they, they've published that that uh, research in in um, scientific journals. Well, that's that's fascinating. Um, um, and I'm thinking, and it doesn't cause any problems for you in terms of management then um, that you you know, for as an example, seeds of weeds or anything. Uh, I'm saying that because I think some farmers could be scared of leaving um, such a strip in the middle of their cultures. Yeah, well, uh, I, I guess it's we make sure we don't leave it. We actually mm -hmm. manage it. So, um, yeah, there probably are a little, you know, a, a few more weeds along the edge, but um, uh, not, not massively detrimental. Um, the strips themselves we manage by um, uh, cutting 50% of the strip with a, with a sort of ride-on lawnmower um, uh, in usually sort of July each year and then the other half between the trees in September. That allows us to actually harvest the, um, harvest the crops in the alleys uh, with a nice clean edge. So, uh, and one of the design features is that all the all the apples that we have, the apple trees, they're all later varieties. Um, so some of the varieties we picked, we couldn't have fruit that was ready to pick in August because we still had to harvest the cereals. So the cereals wouldn't would, wouldn't typically be harvested here till mid August. In a very hot year, it might be early August. But the fruit the fruit's not ready to harvest till sort of late September, early October. So we can harvest the cereals, plant cover crops, and then go and um, uh, um, go and harvest the fruit afterwards. So it's a double harvest here. That's really interesting uh, how, how that fits kind of, uh, and you can spread that through the year. And, and that's really, that's really interesting. Um, now that I think we have a bit of a you know, clear um, idea of what uh, your farm and your agroforestry systems look like, um, I was thinking maybe you could share with us some of the observations you might might have had uh, over the few years. And I'm thinking, you know, we're always interested in the interactions uh, between trees and the cultures. And obviously you planted them uh, for wind protection. So maybe the first question is, were you able to see um, and observe uh, actual improvement in the wind erosion? Yeah, so um, not only uh, you know what we've observed as farmers, but working with universities in terms of doing research, we're seeing less less soil erosion in the agroforestry because the the trees are slowing the wind. You know, the wind is predominantly 
um, from the, the the southwest for a maritime climate. Uh, when the, when the wind blows strongly, uh, the trees are protecting the soils, and um, we're seeing less less erosion. Uh, so that it's doing its job there. Uh, secondly, you know, one of the things that attracted me to the agroforestry was having a mix of perennial plants and also annual plants in a in a climate change world that we now live in uh, planting a seed every uh, every every season and asking it to start from scratch and not knowing whether it's going to be a hot year dry you know, a cold year dry year wet year is is a, is, is like a, a, a uh, like gambling <laughs> it's professional gambling farming um and having a mix of annuals and perennials i think helps mitigate the, some of the risks around climate change and have you um have you seen any kind of um effects of potential competition between the roots of the apple trees and um and your main crop so in terms of those sort of observations um a couple of things. I mean, first thing, you know, one of the reasons we planted fruit trees is because we didn't want the trees to get too big. Uh, so we prune the trees every winter. That allows allows us to pick the fruit by hand. So the trees are only maybe uh, three and a half, four meters tall. Yeah. Um, but 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 at four meters tall, they're giving forty um, meters of wind wind interruption, hmm. and the um, and the alleys are only twenty uh, four meters wide so so there's a nice sort of wind interruption going on Um, every year in the autumn when when the trees uh, lose their leaves and the the energy goes back into the roots we actually root prune so we use a a subsoiler a a deep surface cultivator to go along the edge of the tree strip and actually uh, just as we prune the canopy we prune the roots to help force the roots down deeper in the soil so they're not competing in the same zone as the annual crops. So there's a there's a a, a, um, a differentiation between where those roots are occupying. What, what we've noticed in the last few years, now the trees are, are large and established, is that when it's really wet, uh, last winter, this winter, we've had excessive rainfall. Um, we're, we're set to see more of that with climate change. That the the um, uh, the fields are, are a little drier, and the drainage is improved by by the presence of those those tree roots. Um, but then, conversely, in the summer, when uh, when it when, when we when it, if it gets really hot, um, uh, we had a, a really dry year last year in twenty twenty, and um, uh, there's perhaps a little bit of uh, wind reduction, uh, lower evapotranspiration, and perhaps a bit of shading from the trees. Uh, and what we found is that the crop immediately adjacent, so the sort of three to six meters immediately adjacent to the uh, tree strips, was was twice the crop that it was wow. in the middle of the alley. Um, wow. So l- last year we had we had probably uh, fifteen to eighteen percent lower yields because of drought. Yeah, uh, but the trees, the crop immediately adjacent to the trees was significantly bigger, uh, significantly higher yield, and and those trees are adding to that uh, uh, to that sort of resilience. That's amazing because 
you know, obviously, uh, if we're doing this podcast, as we think agroforestry is interesting, but you know, it's it's um, it's so great to hear from observation how how powerful integrating trees can be. And that's really great. The other, bit, the other bit of research we've been we've been helping with is uh, we've been looking at uh, mycorrhizae. Yeah. So working with some universities, the way we've got the, the the perennial trees in place in the agroforestry strips, the mycorrhizae levels are much higher. And they spread out into the alleys. So there's also probably an effect of you know, better better access to water and nutrients from from those mycorrhizal associations. Um, so have, having having those in the system is just it's like having a you know, turbocharger on a, on a on a car in terms of uh, getting access to water and nutrients at the right times. And uh, so you've actually been kind of followed by a lot of scientists, and it seems like a lot of data is coming out of your farm. Yeah, well, I mean, we're not set. We're not. We didn't set up the system to be research. It's a commercial business that has to make money. We have to pay the rent. Yeah. You know, we're, we're a commercial farming business. But uh, uh, we, I wanted to. I wanted to. I have an inquisitive mind. Uh, some would say that's a blessing. Some, sometimes <laughs> it's a curse. But, uh, uh, um, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to try and demonstrate or show that actually what we were doing uh, actually works. Um, there's an old Chinese uh, proverb which says uh, the, the, the person or the people that say it's impossible shouldn't, shouldn't get in the way of the people that are already doing the impossible. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we wanted to, you know, we had lots of neighbouring farmers saying, you know, what are you doing? Why are you planting trees? You must be mad. Wow, uh, we wanted to um, we wanted to show that actually it, it is possible and it does work, and, and having roughly fifty percent of the farm with agroforestry and fifty percent of the farm without agroforestry gives us a great uh, uh, opportunity to show show the benefits. So I was just wondering, since you do have uh, these you know two different types of plots with um, and a bit of a possibility to compare. Uh, were you able to observe any difference in terms of pest pressure or disease pressure on the crops uh, between the agroforestry plots and the ones without trees? Um, it's interesting in that you know, as, as an organic farmer, uh, I, I I don't get very uh, exercised or I don't get very concerned by pests or diseases because we're trying to actively trying to do systems without. Without pest or you know trying to minimise the risk of pest or diseases in the first place, um, so we, we don't have major pest or disease issues. Having said that, the research that we, we we've done with universities shows that there are, are much higher much higher numbers and uh, special distributions of beneficial insects um, and fewer harmful insects uh, in the agroforestry. So I think we're we're well placed. Now, if we if we were to have a pest issue, we're well placed to have lots of beneficials to help uh, be part of the team to fight the problem. But we we, we don't see may you know I, I don't get exercised by pest and disease problems. They're, they're not a they're not a problem for us. No, oh, that's great. And um, you know, I was thinking you you mentioned um, uh, soil mycorrhizae and the fact that you were able to to see an increase. Did you also do other tests to measure kind of soil biology? And did you see any differences as well uh, by introducing trees? So we, we haven't seen any 
massively significant uh, differences in um, uh, soil uh, nutrient status. But what we have been doing is, uh, you know, I, I trained as a soil biologist, so I, I've been actually doing some work on soil biology, uh, hence the mycorrhizae. Um, and what we found is in the in the plots or the fields with the, the um, with the trees, we've seen a much bigger shift from uh, arable soils, which are predominantly bacterial dominated, to a, a shift towards more fungal domination in the in the in the species. Mm. Uh, so you know, ultimately, you, we need a mixture of both fungi and bacteria in the soils to as the engine to drive the, the soil microbiome. But but actually, most most cropping arable soils are too dominated by bacteria, and the trees have really helped us move it towards a more more fungal balance, which is giving us more resilience in terms of drought. It's giving us more access to to nutrients, um, and uh, and and you know productivity has been increasing. So when to give you some idea, we're now uh, we, our cropping has changed a little bit. We're over the last few years, we've been growing a lot more um, oats. Yeah. Uh, we actually grow one of the few farms in the UK growing for a certified organic and certified gluten-free market. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually celiac myself, so I suffer okay. from celiac disease. So I have an interest in gluten-free products. Sure. And uh, um, we're growing growing gluten-free oats, and we're yielding typically six to 6.4 tonnes per hectare of, of organic oats, which is, which is pretty respectable. Wow. Um, and um, kind of my last question to, to wrap up this a bit of agronomic section. Um, I know you already have uh, very high levels of organic matter. So has um, introducing trees increased that organic matter? Is that something that you necessarily want? Um. So uh, yeah, I mean, when you're starting, <laughs> if you're starting at very low levels of organic matter, it's, you can increase them by you know cover crops and agronomic processes. When, when you when you've already got very high levels, our objective was not necessarily to increase the organic matter; it was to maintain the organic matter and stop the fields blowing away. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but where, where parts of the farm are very heavy clay. Uh, in the distance, um, about uh, four kilometers away, I can see some very tall towers and chimneys, and that's that's the brick factories. And, wow. and this location was um, uh, where they mined all the clay to make bricks. Uh, so we're right on the edge of that. So part of the fields is very heavy clay. Uh, and when we first moved onto the farm, we... Uh, we really struggled to get crops to grow because the soil was in such bad condition. Yeah. Now the, the germination and the crops there is as good as it is elsewhere on the farm, and that's partly because of the trees, and partly because of the, the organic system, and partly because of sure. using cover crops, etc. So the, I wouldn't say it was all the agroforestry, but the agroforestry definitely contributes to that. Of course, and it's true that. Um... For the purpose of the podcast, we we focus a lot about you know on agroforestry and the trees, but uh, yeah, totally understand that the cover crops play a huge role, and they're only a little part of a bigger transformation on the farm that obviously has been successful. Um, so it's, it's, there's no there's no single uh, 
silver bullet. It's, it's sure. lots of little lots of little hammers which mm. help you help you change the system. And I've I've kind of tried to force you to you know separate things and say it's just the trees. And I realize it's a bit tricky, but the, the, I think the takeaway is that yeah, they were part of a of a really positive transformation of the farm and that even if they're not the only ones responsible they definitely played their part in, in taking you where you are today the, the, the bit that really excites me about the agroforestry now it's established is this mixture of perennials and annuals yeah. but also that we've made the farm bigger so we're farming three-dimensionally you know as farmers too often we always think uh, uh you know, at the the height of a, a head of uh, wheat or, or the back of a all-brett cow. <laughs> um, uh, we, we, we think very two-dimensionally, whereas if we can use the farm three-dimensionally uh, and, and have components that don't compete in the same space or at the same time, then we can make the farm much bigger. Um, and you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is take sunlight and water and carbon dioxide and build carbon so it's yeah. about solar capture and the trees the crops are growing from winter through through the winter through to midsummer and the trees are growing from late spring through to late autumn so there's an overlap in time and there's also an overlap in space deep tree roots high canopy uh, the cereals and the vegetables are shallower roots and, sh and lower canopies so they don't compete with each other and, and the the work that's been done on agroforestry productivity shows that the sort of land equivalent ratios are typically between sort of one one and 1 1.4 i.e the same level of productivity or up to 40 percent more productive from the combination of both components the studies that we've done show we're we're, we're between sort of we were a few years ago at sort of 1.1, we're now at about 1.25. So we're sort of 25% more productive than the agroforestry than we are in just the cropping area alone. Wow, it's great to to have this uh, this data. But you know, for the moment, we've we've talked a lot about uh, the successes of agroforestry. But I'm wondering, is there also a flip side to it? And especially in terms of you know implementation and management. Uh, what kind of challenges have you encountered? <laughs> well, we've made loads of mistakes. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's part of of learning, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I, I guess you know, some of the lessons that we've learned, uh, some of the varieties we picked weren't were, weren't the best varieties. There's a couple of varieties I wouldn't pick again. Um, I think fruit trees were the right thing um, when we planted the trees. Uh, a few th a few things happened. Um, initially, the trees were were planted as in two thousand nine as as uh, one year old trees, so they were about one one to one point two meters tall, as a, as a very thin um, uh, stem. Uh, and they, when we planted them, we we put a machined round post. Uh, and, a, and a tie to the tree and, and a guard um, and, and a small bamboo uh, cane stick yeah. to support. Uh, when the tree started to grow, 
the one thing that we hadn't anticipated is that we'd created 4,500 perching posts for oh. pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine when one pigeon comes and lands on your young tree. But when two of his friends come to keep him company, uh, we, we found about a thousand trees had got broken. Oh, uh, no. You know, maybe uh, uh, 0.3 of a meter got broken out of the top. That was a that hard lesson. So we actually we went back and um, and put a, uh, a sort of three meter bamboo stick mm. while with every tree, uh, and that solved the problem because the the pigeons would perch on top of the stick. Okay. Now that's not a problem because the trees are big. The, the, yeah. yeah a hundred pigeons could land and the trees would be fine. So that was that was one lesson. The second lesson is that uh, uh, the machined posts that we planted with the planted we put in with the tree new, new tree planting the um the quality of the timber was very poor and after three years they'd rotten uh, mm. and i should have spent more money on a on a hardwood chestnut yeah post uh, so that was a mistake uh, i guess the third thing would be um uh where we are I, I probably should have bought wood chip and put around the base of the tree to help with weed control uh, mm. when, uh, when the trees were establishing in the first few years. But we're, we're in an area where there isn't a lot of wood chip and wood mulch available. Um, and we used a uh, geotextile uh, one meter square around the trees, which worked perfectly, worked really well, kept the weeds mm. down. Um, Ten years on, when you when you try and mow around the tree, sometimes you collect the one meter geotextile in the mower, <laughs> which can be a problem. But the bigger problem is is that actually it's an ideal home for uh, voles and mice, uh, and it's nice and warm and dry. And sometimes they eat the the root of the tree. So we've lost a few trees. Maybe only five percent, but we lost a few trees from vole. But potentially, the wood chips would have also been a good habitat for them. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there are pluses and minuses. So there's some, there's some. (coughs) Excuse me. There's some lessons that we've learned. Um, The understory that we planted, uh, some of the species didn't survive. Um, I probably would have planted more. Uh, lucerne alfalfa yeah. and mm-hmm. more sanfoin because that's done really well mm-hmm. um, and it has a, has a long lifespan so you know those are some of the things and I guess the other thing that the other lesson that we learned uh, it were in a, quite a windy location uh, and uh, in an orchard bees are really important for pollination in agroforestry bees are really important for pollination but in a really windy exposed location the bees tend to uh, travel, they tend to um, uh, roam and pollinate in the more sheltered areas and not so much in the most more exp- exposed areas, uh, especially if it's sort of wet and cold or, or, or raining. So we now work with a, a commercial beekeeper uh, to have, um, we've got 40 hives out on the farm. Um, so having, having, more bees earlier in the system, I think, would have been better because we yeah. found some areas that the fruit production was compromised by 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 lack of pollination. 
but I just wanted to go back to the what you were saying about the wood chips because what what would you do then? Because it is a tricky question um, about because we use wood chips uh, planting fruit trees uh, in Greece on Mazi Farm, but the volumes are huge, and especially if you have humid conditions, which wasn't the case in Greece, but presumably is the case in England, then you're having to remulch quite often to keep the weed suppression effect. So you know now that you know this, would you still how would you get the wood chips and would you maybe use another fabric then or I, I looked at it and from a practical and cost point of view it wasn't viable for us because we're in an area where there isn't you know we're in, we're in the part of the country where there isn't much forestry and the wood chip was really expensive to transport yeah uh, so so at the time it wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't an option but um, mm. I think I'd be looking at other things now perhaps um, uh, compost or perhaps wool, used wool from sheep. Um, uh, you know, uh, even cardboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true. There's interesting things out there. In terms of management, though, how you know you you mentioned that you put the the tree lines north north to south for the the sunshine sunshine effect. Um, that, has it changed a lot the way you work the land in terms of machinery? Uh, has it added some extra constraints? No, in fact, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do is make sure that we could use uh, normal farm machinery. So um, what it's actually done is opened up an opportunity for us to develop a controlled traffic farming system. Yeah. So that we, we've actually uh, rationalized all our machinery to six meters. So uh, cultivators are six meters. The sowing uh, cedar is six meters. Uh, we we actually run being an organic farm. We run a six meter cedar matched to a uh, six meter interrow hoe, a Garford okay. uh, robo crop. Um, so uh, we we sow all our cereals at um, twenty two centimeter spacings in the row, and then we use a computer and camera guided hoe, the robo crop six meters matched to the cedar, which does an interrow uh, weeding between the cereals which works brilliantly. And so that's six meters, four, uh, four passes in the alley between the trees, six, 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 six. Um, and then our, our, our combine is 6.2 meters. So everything was now developed into a, a really well operating uh, controlled traffic farming system. Um, and if we apply um, uh, permitted trace minerals like manganese or magnesium we can still run a 24 meter crop sprayer down the middle of the uh, down the middle of the field and how has the extra workload uh, that comes with um, taking care of the trees so not only the harvest and the selling but you know the root pruning the pruning how has that kind of integrated to your previous productions is it something that's kind of easily spread out through the year or have you had to well, deal with some extra yeah. yeah, it's at times. It's actually at times of year when we're not so busy on the farm. Mm. Um, so um, the the pruning for the uh, for the fruit trees is is winter time, and and um, there tends to be less uh, cropping and ar arable and crop and other work to do on the farm during the winter. So that that keeps uh, keeps employment on the farm. Um, as, as a hundred hectare farm, it was, it was always quite difficult to justify employing somebody to work on the farm full time but the trees have helped us do that 
because it provides employment during the winter months. Yeah. Um, the picking the picking of the fruit is after the main harvest and the main cereal harvest and crop harvest is is during August and the fruit harvest is our, our second harvest in late September early October and um, and ju- that's just before we go and then start the the, the autumn sowing and seeding program for the uh, cereal crops so it all meshes quite well gives us a nice even profile of labor throughout throughout the year really and it's not too hard to find labor then in, in the region because i know sometimes that's a limitation is that you know s- certain things make ecological sense but then you yeah. don't necessarily have the human resources to actually pick fruits or um well we're, we're quite we're quite mechanized uh in that um but we do we we usually employ a team of about uh six uh casual staff for picking um and we are in a part of the country where there is quite a lot of vegetables grown, so the the, um, the casual labour that's that's picking vegetables during the summer. By the time that they've got to late September and October, a lot of those vegetables have been harvested, or the salad crops have been harvested. So we pick up some of that um, that casual labour in the in the early autumn and, and just use them. You know, it's just six people for a couple of weeks to pick all all the fruit, and then. That's that's picked into three hundred kilo uh, uh, bins, which are on the back of a low uh, trailer behind a hundred sixty horsepower tractor, yeah. uh, and uh, and then we use a, a you know a telescopic uh, JCB to to move everything around, quite mechanised. Um, so it's, it's just the picking from the trees and putting into the bin, which can be done reasonably quickly and quite efficiently. And for the the pruning of the trees, uh, how many people do you have? Well, we'll we'll, we'll typically we have a rotation, so we'll we'll uh, we two people will prune half the trees one year and half the trees the the following year. Okay. So that's that's one one uh, the the the, uh, the man that works on the farm full time plus one other, and we'll do the pruning uh, through the winter. So apparently, um, from a kind of practical perspective, uh, the trees have you know integrated really well into your farm operation. But in terms of sales, how did that happen? Because you're kind of bringing in a new product, and how did that integration to the business come along? Yeah. So um, you know, as I said earlier on in the interview, we we selected apples because. Uh, we, you know, we we rent the farm and we wanted a an economic return within the within the period of our um, rental agreement of fifteen years, um, and uh, we we could also see there was an opportunity to grow organic uh, organic apples using agroforestry because most of the most of the orchards that are are operated in in the UK and throughout Europe are are really highly intensive so they're not suited to to organic production because that because they're highly intensive uh, so it's actually quite difficult to grow organic organic apples um, so we we thought that there was an opportunity to do it in an agroforestry way um, and so so initially when we started harvesting fruit from about year four onwards uh, some of our fruit was just sold wholesale uh, until um, three years ago, when we 
we went through a year of building building the farm shop and the uh, and the cafe, which my wife my wife runs. She she heads that that business up, um, and then um, that allows us to to sell the fruit uh, directly to consumers. Um, but it's still about probably about eighty percent of it now is is turned into to apple juice. When we do uh, a mixed blended apple juice and also single priority apple juices, which we are bottled, and then we we can we can retail them throughout the year, and then wow. that works really well, and it adds significant value as well. Sure, and your local market is is significant enough to absorb that amount of of apples. Yeah, so we're fortunate. We, you know, the town Peterborough has uh, two hundred twenty thousand people. Um, that's between, I suppose, two and eight kilometres away, uh, depending depending on the farm. But the shop the shop could be about eight eight kilometres from the city. And uh, in a normal year, um, yeah, there's there's good demand and uh, and and we sell plenty. Clearly, it's a pretty bumpy ride for retail yeah. and hospitality businesses with COVID sure. at the moment. It's 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 quite challenging. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering how many tons does it represent that you collect every year? So uh, the trees are, let's say, four and a half thousand trees. Um, the strips under the trees on the 52 hectares, uh, the strips are actually four hectares in size. So it's about 8% of the, the land area is, is has trees and about 92% as uh, cereal crops um, and, and the trees are yielding about five tons per hectare of fruit. So we're around 20, 20 25 tons of fruit per year. Um, and, uh, you know, and 80% of that will get turned into juice, which we sell in um, 750 milliliter or 250 milliliter bottles. Hmm. And you probably don't have that figure off the top of your head, but you know, presumably the trees occupy eight percent of the land, but represent a much higher value uh, proportionally in terms of your your sales. Yeah, so uh, I'll try and do a quick calculation into euros. Uh, but uh, well, you can say um, it in pounds; it's fine. <laughs> the the the, the uh, well, the euro pound is about the same. Mm. Um, uh, um, the the output for. Uh, the cereals is about, I suppose, about thirteen hundred euros per hectare. Mm. Um, the the fruit is about uh, eighteen hundred euros per hectare um, in terms of economic output. Um, but that's as a, that, that's at a wholesale price. If yeah. we turn that, if we turn that that fruit into juice, it's worth yeah four thousand euros a hectare. Wow. So, so you can treble its value in in in, in turning into a into a juice product. Wow, it's yeah, it's great. Um, one thing comes to mind though is that you mentioned how difficult it is to uh, do organic apples, and then you you know by uh, diversifying to perennial crops and apples, you are taking on a whole new type of production uh, with a lot of technical challenges. So, um, you know, the other input being knowledge. Was it difficult to gain that expertise of, of uh, producing organic apples? 
Yeah, um, I, I'll be perfectly honest. We were complete novices in terms of fruit production. Yeah. Probably still are. <laughs> um, I'm a much better cereal farmer than I am fruit farmer. And, uh, you know, we probably should be uh, fertilizing and pushing the production harder on the fruit. But I'm, you know, I'm a better cereal farmer than I am a fruit farmer. Um, uh, and we, we, we just had to learn by talking to other people um, about, about, uh, about production. And, and the challenge there is that most of the production is, is very intensive and there's very little organic fruit production. So there are relatively few people you can talk to and you have to, you have to make it up as you go along. Yeah, but on the other hand, of course, you could be pushing it more. But obviously, then if you're pushing it more, it's also more time and resources and inputs that you're investing. Yeah. So if you're able to have a low input system and still manage to have uh, produce to sell and make a profit on it, it is still very interesting. Yeah, and that's that's really our, uh, you know, our farming. Um, I suppose our farming philosophy is, is easy care. Mm. Uh, you know, it's low input, um, uh, good output, and and adding value. Because not only do we we run the farming business, we run the the uh, the, the retail and the cafe business and the education. Uh, and also I run a consultancy business um, uh, working with other organic farmers and, and also part-time I'm head of soils for the Royal Agricultural Society of England. So, mm. we're, you know, we're busy. We, we we can only do so many things. There are only 24 hours in a day and seven days a week. There's a, a question in terms of um, the workload then, because we've talked about value, we've talked about... Uh, how much of the land it occupies, but uh, how do you distribute your time between the cereals and the apples, and how much does it, how much additional workload does it represent, including those trees? Um, so there, there, there obviously is some additional work, uh, and the system is more complex. But the, the, the work is at different periods of the year. So yeah. for cereals, uh, the, 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 the seeding is, the cultivations and seeding is in you know, sort of October into November. The, the weeding is in the spring and the, the harvesting is in, is in August for us. Whereas the fruit trees, the pruning is in, um, uh, in the middle of winter, in, in December, January, February. Uh, and the um, and the harvesting is in October, so they don't clash. Uh, they're, they're really different periods of the year for the yeah. different operations. And the mm. pick, the pick, you know, for the fruit is after the after the uh, after the cereal. You know, I, I drive the combine harvester, so we finish the harvest, and there's sort of a uh, a triumphant. Yeah, we finished harvest, and then you have. 10 days or two weeks and then you start harvest again <laughs> yeah there's two harvests and we're only really finished harvest by the time mm. we've got all the fruit harvested but it, it seems you know i've been trying to to pick things and, and find the the flaw but overall it just seems that you you're very satisfied with with what you've done with uh, including these trees and it really seems to make sense um both in terms of economic sense and and practical sense and also a certain enjoyment um, diversifying your productions. Yeah, I, I, it is, it, it works. And, and I was, I was 
determined to make it set it up to make it work but it is more complex there are yep. and as you rightly said this you know it, it's a uh, it's managed complexity for want of mm. a better word so we've introduced more, more management requirement because we have two you know, perennials and annuals and fruit and and cereals but it but it's quite manageable it's just another crop that we've yep. had to learn we've you know the machinery all works we haven't had to go and buy any other than some hand pruning equipment and a, and, a, and a mower to mow under the trees we haven't had to go and buy any any specialist equipment so it's it, it's doable by by any farm and that's part of you know part of what we wanted to do is to is to is to do something that other farmers could do as well and and i guess one of the real bonuses is that you know we started this interview by saying that the farm the farm we have is rented on a 15-year agreement um, on the basis of what we've done here uh, with the, the organic production, with the agroforestry, also with the, the retail business as well, but with the agroforestry particularly, um, it allowed us to go to our landowner and say, listen, we, you know, we've, we've invested heavily in the farm, we've improved the farm, um, we, want, we want a longer, a longer uh, a rental arrangement. So at year 10, uh, we surrendered the rental agreement and took another fifteen years, so okay. that gives gives us twenty five years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I I, uh, I I often say that we've made the farm so complicated that they can't let it to anybody else. <laughs> That's a good strategy. It's, it's a um, good strategy. Yeah. And um, you know, kind of taking this interview to an end because I want to be considerate with your time as well, and um, the clock is ticking. But I'm I'm interested to know a bit as a as a conclusion, um, what are the next steps for Whitehall Farm then? Because you still have um, you're still renting, so you know, are you thinking of complexifying more if you get longer leases, or how do you imagine the the next few years? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, yeah, we we've done a lot, probably uh, more than what many farmers would do. Um, we the agroforestry is working you know i think i think that works well i don't think i'd change too many things different varieties perhaps um i think we may go back into some more vegetable production uh, yeah. if the market opportunities allow um i am exploring the possibility of planting more trees but as nursery trees okay um, you know, there's, with climate change, there's a big demand throughout Europe for planting more trees. Where's yeah. all that planting material going to come from? Perhaps we can use agroforestry, uh, and instead of planting one tree in a row, we plant two, and we leave one, and we take the other out and sell it. So now having the sort of tree expertise that we could, we could actually grow some planting material as using agroforestry as a nursery production system. Mm. Uh, so that's that's one of the things I'm thinking about. But we shall continue to do more and more on the retail and um, farm shop and the, and the cafe and the education and, and bringing people to the farm to learn about farming, to, to buy produce uh, and, and add value that way. So I think that's where our energy is going to go. Sure. And, and, and um... to be honest, sorry, to be honest, I've spent, I've spent a lot of time, a lot of time, uh, talking to government and policy makers, 
you know, 10 years ago, agroforestry was uh, ignored uh, and, and, and to some extent ridiculed. Uh, five years ago, polite interest. And we're now at a stage where actually, because of Brexit, we're actually developing our own domestic agricultural policy and agroforestry is is very much in favour by government and, and it will be supported. So mm. we've, we've actually helped. You know, I've, I've been pretty central, I think, in, in helping government wake up to the benefits of agroforestry, underpinned by the research that others have done and we've done here. And um, so we spent a lot of time and I will continue to spend a lot of time helping shape agricultural policy here in the UK um, to um, uh, to make sure agroforestry is part of a, a, a land use system. In fact, you know, I, I, I was the first vice president of the European Agroforestry Federation. Well, which yeah. With Christian Duprat and I mm. and others dreamt up over many bottles of wine. <laughs> late night in Paris, uh, back in 2011 and 12, I think. Oh, that's great. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to to get uh, Christian Duprat and, and others on the podcast as well, because um, I mean, your whole group has done so much great work on agroforestry and and so many helpful resources. Um, and to conclude, I'm I'm curious to have your opinion because you know we haven't really had the time, but you also. To, to discuss this, but you also did this trip and and produced um, a report on on agroforestry in the world that's fascinating. That we'll definitely put the link under the episode. So you you have what I mean is that you have experience and have seen things um, way beyond just your experience on your farm. And from all that knowledge and your experience, what do you think are the kind of key points to focus on to develop agroforestry or the key missing pieces of the puzzle? Yeah, as you rightly say, I was very fortunate to be, uh, well, first off, I was very fortunate to be awarded uh, a Nuffield scholarship to travel globally looking at agroforestry. And I went to North and South America, I spent time in China, all around Europe. Um, and in fact, just before Christmas uh, last year, I was awarded a, another award, uh, which was a recognition of the person who had changed the industry most um, uh, as a result of that, that Nuffield scholarship, which was a great accolade. But um, in answer to your question, um, in terms of where things might go, uh, what I might do differently, uh, where are some of the sort of blockages to agroforestry? I think there there are a number of things. Uh, I actually, if if I had a crystal ball, I think um, I think nut trees are going to be really important over the next decade. I think nut protein um, um, is going to be hugely important. So I think agroforestry has a has a role to play there. Yeah. Uh, I also think actually more collaborations. You know, if we, if we want multifunctional land use to deliver biodiversity, to deliver productivity. To, to be resilient against climate change, and agroforestry is very much multifunctional. We actually need multi-operator. Now, one of the one of the challenges of the common agricultural policy is that it, it says one person is in charge of this parcel of land, and yeah. you, you might have multiple occupation, and 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 that requires that as a farmer, yeah, you know, as a farmer, I'm multi-skilled. I'm a 
I'm a, a biologist, I'm a physicist, I'm a chemist, I'm a plumber, electrician, accountant, you know, many things. But as you rightly said, I, I, I know about grain production, I had to learn about fruit production, but I think there's an opportunity for people to work together, to cooperate, so that perhaps one person manages the tree component and one person manages the, the crops and another person manages the livestock. But the, the policy structures don't allow that to happen. Mm. They say that one person must be responsible for, for one, one parcel of land. And that has to change. Because if yeah. we want if we want to build resilience against climate change, we need we need to use each other's knowledge and skills because we don't all know everything or have the skills for everything. What you just said resonates with me so much because my experience these last months um, traveling to different farms in France is I've often found that you know we often think that uh, the limiting factor is land, which is true. It is hard to get you know access to land, but I met so many farmers that wanted to diversify, wanted to complexify, but just didn't have the skills, the resources, or the mm. time to do so. And we're just looking basically for um, partners to be able to do these, these things together and make the most out of these synergies. So I think what you, you said is really key, and we're definitely going to need some new um, collaborations. And you mentioned the the legal side, let's say the subsidy side, the common agricultural policy, but that also means, you know, in, in kind of like the the ways we are used to to farm and that farmers also you know connect back so, with a certain form of collective you know some of the legal challenges are like the common agricultural policy or our own domestic agricultural policy here in the uk or indeed land tenure so i rent the farm the rental agreement doesn't allow me to let any land to anybody else because that yeah. would be subletting mm. but those kind of limitations stifle innovation yeah the common agricultural policy has been good at food security but it's been it's massively stifled with innovation mm. and, uh, and and if we want if we want farming systems that are multifunctional and resilient to climate change we need to we need to you know have have a new thinking yeah. to allow us to to build systems that have that innovation and that resilience and that, that's something I actually f forgot to ask you, but just quickly, maybe, could you tell us how difficult is it to implement an agroforestry system on the land that you don't own? Because then you, you have to go and ask permission from the landowner. Uh, how, yeah. how does that go? So, uh, you know, two years before we established the agroforestry, I, I had those conversations with our landowner. Uh, I had to sign a document which basically said if if we surrender the farm and we give up the rental agreement i have to take the trees with me <laughs> and, and return it to agricultural land I'm, I'm hoping i'm hoping that in you know another 15 years when, when we eventually if we if we give up the farm that um the system will be will be so robust and work so well that another the following uh, occupier will will say yeah we'll just keep them and yeah. that won't be a problem but um I was prepared to take that risk. So, if nothing else, then you know I would have to start a a, a firewood business. Yeah, uh, I think so. <laughs> in fifteen years' time, or know, a so wood carving, wood carving yeah, enterprise. Wood carving. Yeah, not it's not the end of the world. <laughs> Listen, Stefan, um, thank you so much uh, for all this information. It's been really a great 
interview and it's uh, really fascinating to to be able to hear all of your experience and and everything that you've witnessed um through your experience on Whitehall Farm so thank thank you so much it's a pleasure and I uh, hope uh, it makes interesting reading to uh or interesting listening I should say to to your listeners and and I'll just take the opportunity to say uh you know, in, the, in these challenging times, it's great to be in agriculture. Great to 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 watch agroforestry develop, and I hope everyone's uh, well and safe. Well, thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you've made it this far, we would like to know from you who you would like us to interview on the podcast. So please get in touch with us um, in on our website. And um, just let us know if there's anybody that you're a fan of and you want us to question. And you can even send us some questions so that we can ask them exactly what you would like to know. So don't hesitate to get in touch and see you next time.